submitted. We'll hear argument next in number 
Can't you make that inference from the evidence? You can make that inference from the evidence, but it would be a false assumption. The first false assumption is that Eberly was the only person who could have made that call because the radio was the only way out of the housing unit. And in fact, there was a telephone that has a, a, a speed dial number keyed in right to the control center within 15 feet of where the, the victim collapsed. The fact that someone else could have made the call doesn't mean that Everly didn't. Um, that's true, but the question here, Your Honor, is who made the first call? Uh, was Everly's call transmitted before um, Mr. Schloop, you know, or after Mr. Schloop uh, got into the dining room? And, and actually, in this case, uh, they, they, they built a delay into Eberly even getting into the, the housing unit to make that call. But my point, Your Honor, is that there is ample evidence to show several sources of, of uh, the guards being notified. Uh, this that sounds very much like the, the kind of questions juries resolve every day. You introduce this evidence at a trial. The defense introduces evidence showing perhaps mistake, and you submit it to a jury. Your Honor, in this case, there was key evidence withheld from the jury that completely stripped the videotape of its probative value. Um, and that was the evidence of a witness who said that he picked up the telephone and called base within 30 seconds of Arthur Dade hitting the ground. And if that's so, then Mr. Sloop was in, his, in the dining room at the time. So this was withheld from the jury? It was, it was not presented to the jury. Oh, um, Pardon me? Why not? Um, the defense lawyer could have, had he done a reasonable investigation, found this evidence. Um, and I think there's a, a question of whether or not that fact was disclosed to the defense attorney. That's a, a, a question of fact that exists in this case that has not been resolved. Well, are you saying defense, defense counsel was incompetent, that he didn't have... Uh, proper assistance of counsel? That is, that, that is one of the constitutional claims that underlies the showing of innocence. Was, this is a, was that claim made earlier? Yes, Your Honor. That it was claim, made in, in a prior habeas. It was made in a prior habeas with absolutely... You want to make it again? Uh, yes, this time with evidence. At this time, you would be able to make it again if, if you come up with new evidence of incompetence still. I assume that's your position, right? Your Honor, our position is that we can now prove that Mr. Schloop is innocent. But if you, under fail, if you fail this time, as Justice Scalia says, if you come up with some more new statements or newly discovered witnesses, you say you can make the claim again. Your Honor... Do you or do you not? Um, I would make the... I would continue to make the claim because that's my role as an advocate for the client. But the practical... As a practical matter, Your Honor, at this point... I think we have as much probative evidence of Mr. Schloop's innocence that we need to meet the standard that this court... What is it? Do you want to show ineffective assistance of counsel? Is that the uh, constitutional issue you want to argue if you meet the threshold uh, of the exception that you're arguing about? That is one, Your Honor. The other is Brady versus Maryland. Well, uh, so far as ineffective assistance, that's, that's almost uh, would put us in the position of an advisory opinion, wouldn't it? Because the... Uh, circuit has already said, we have looked at this issue and we are not going to change our mind. Uh, we have found that there was effective assistance of counsel. Your Honor, I, I believe that, to me, that statement in the court below seems to be dicta because the court said, in, in another place in its opinion, that we might get a different result under a different standard. The underlying facts have never been resolved in the district court because there was never any evidence introduced in the first habeas corpus. And in the Eighth Circuit... Can I interrupt you because, because uh, there's another point I, that I, I think we should be clear on. The Brady claim 
was not determined below. Isn't that correct? That's correct, Your Honor. Even, even if we assume Strickland was, Brady was not. Correct, Your Honor. Okay. Correct. But it was, was a question, and, and that is, are you recognizing that the actual innocence claim is a door opener so that you must have behind it some constitutional claim, the Brady claim, ineffective, or are you making the argument that newly discovered evidence of innocence of the crime is enough without any more to make out a constitutional violation? Your Honor, in this case, Mr. Schlup's innocence functions as a door opener uh, to get into I court. I just wanted to know what your position is. Well, on that point, then, uh, for a successive habeas claim, normally we require the petitioner to show cause and prejudice, do we not, to make a successive habeas claim? Normally, the court does require that, Your Honor. All right. And you are saying um, that this is a successive claim, but shouldn't the standard uh, employed uh, be something greater than the cause and prejudice requirement? Otherwise, the two just uh, are subsumed together. That, that's correct. We're not asking the court to do away with cause under the cause-prejudice test. And, in fact, every time this court has referred to the cause-prejudice standard, it also reserves the possibility of the fundamental miscarriage of justice exception as a recognition that there will be occasional cases that the cause-prejudice test does not reach. And as but, to that, it ought to be something, uh, some standard higher than merely cause and prejudice. That's correct, think. Your Honor. And, and the standard that we're asking to apply, the standard that this Court now applies, is Kuhlman versus Wilson. We are... Uh, well, that's part of the problem, because the Kuhlman standard may actually be even a lesser standard than cause and prejudice. I think that's not clear at all. Your Honor, I believe it's clear from the Court's jurisprudence that the Kuhlman standard is greater than the cause and prejudice standard, and I think McCleskey is a good example of that. The, the, the Kuhlman standard is really a truth-oriented standard. We are trying to determine the equity of innocence and whether or not it exists in the case. The cause and prejudice standard is oriented to the adversarial system and whether it's a, produced an appropriate result. But McCleskey is a good example of a person who could probably show prejudice had he been able to show cause. But he could definitely not meet the Kuhlman standard. What uh, we're trying to find out here is which of perhaps two or perhaps three standards apply to, the, to this door opener, as you refer to as Justice Ginsburg, the Kuhlman standard, perhaps Murray against Carrier, perhaps Sawyer, all of which have stated the thing in, in somewhat different words. Isn't that correct? That, that's correct, Your Honor, except that when the Sawyer standard stated, when the Sawyer decision stated the miscarriage of justice standard for death penalty people, guilty people who were challenging a sentence, it specifically stated that that situation is distinctly different than an innocent person coming before the court asking for access to a court's enforcement of the Constitution. In that case, the Kuhlman standard was praised as a standard that is easy to apply, and indeed... The Eighth Circuit held here that the Sawyer standard applied where the challenge was to guilt as well as where the challenge is to sentence. And that's the question you brought before us for review. Correct. Whether we should have two different standards, one for guilt and one for sentence, or whether Sawyer should be applied across the board. 
That's correct, Your Honor. And um, I, I believe that there are two different standards because there are two different situations. Well, Mr. Uh, O'Brien, didn't Sawyer apply its standard to both guilt and penalty phase challenges in that case? Your Honor. The Court's opinion said it did. It did apply it to a guilt phase standard, but not an innocence argument. I believe there's a fundamental distinction because Sawyer's evidence, even if he was, even if it was true, as the, the court observed, still left him guilty of a capital crime. And so he was not innocent in the Sawyer sense of the word. He was not innocent of the death penalty. He was not innocent of the crime. I believe there's also a world of difference between innocence where you got the wrong person and innocence where you have the right person but the wrong crime. And this is innocence where we have the wrong person convicted of this crime. And we have introduced You're not evidence. making a so-called Herrera-type challenge here. You're just trying to use this as a door opener to make some other constitutional challenge. That's correct, Your Honor, uh, because there is ample evidence that a reasonable attorney could have found there were four or five people who were interviewed by corrections officers who said that they saw the murder. And th this is not based on what counsel... Of course, if, if, if we disagree with you that it's dictum in the circuit court's opinion, the ineffective assistance of counsel claim has been litigated and resolved. Is that not correct? If you disagree with me, Your Honor, I believe that's, that's probably correct. I, I think that... Incidentally, and was your Brady claim presented to the circuit court? Your Honor, the Brady claim was, was presented in the district court, and the briefing in the circuit court focused mainly on the, um, the, the procedural gateway argument. My question and is, was the Brady claim presented to the circuit court? No, Your Honor. And I, I don't recall if the ineffective counsel claim was presented. The majority opinion uh, was responding more to the dissenting opinion, uh, and that was kind of a process of the expedited nature of the proceedings. This case was decided in the Eighth Circuit, uh, under execution warrant with simultaneous briefs filed. And then the, the major uh, basis for the, the Eighth Circuit's ruling on the merits or a discussion of the merits were depositions that were filed after oral argument just a few days before the execution warrant was scheduled to be uh, carried out. Well, I, I, don't, I suppose your argument also is that you wouldn't have to present the Brady claim in order, so long as it's still alive, to challenge the prior question of the uh, of the district courts using the wrong gateway. That's correct. This is uh, the issues in this case involve the gateway. If it used the wrong gateway, then uh, then it would be sent back down for uh, proper consideration of the Brady claim. That, that's exactly correct, Your Honor. So the yes. Brady claim was still alive, but you didn't have to argue it in the court of appeal. Exactly. Exactly. Um, and we were Brian going to the gateway standard. Do you read Kuhlman and Carrier as as as? Uh, 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 as, as establishing or, or affirming equivalent tests. Kuhlman speaks of fair probability of reasonable doubt. Carrier speaks of probability of, of innocence. Are those, these, are those two cases referring to the same standard? I believe those are equivalent standards. Um, I, I think that is the same standard, Your Honor. Um, and in, in is there a difference, at least as uh, taking the Carrier formulation, is there a difference between that and what might rise to the level of a Herrera claim? Herrera is, um, yeah, I, I, I'm not sure. I mean, I hope, as Justice O'Connor said in Herrera, hopefully the court will never have to address the Herrera claim, because I think if a uh, case gets this far, uh, and and there is still 
compelling evidence of innocence such as exists in this case, um, then it's likely that something, that these constitutional rights that are, exist to ensure the reliability of the result probably were violated somewhere down the line. Um, and there, there's... But in, in any case, you'll, you'll settle for the, for the carrier formulation. I would settle for the carrier formulation, Your Honor. Um, Isn't there going to be some awkwardness if we have two different standards, one for guilt and one for sense? Uh, in Sawyer, I think arson was both an aggravating circumstance and an element of the crime. So would you say that so far as it was an aggravating, aggravating circumstance, you would analyze it under the Sawyer standard? But as insofar as an element of the crime, you would analyze the same facts under the Kuhlman standard? Um, Mr. Chief Justice, there is a phrase in your opinion in Sawyer that indicates that that may be so. But I disagree. I, I believe the fundamental distinction is between an innocent person and a person who is uh, co convicted of the wrong crime or a lesser crime. And, it, and the first question in that second situation that you've hypothesized is whether or not that's a fundamental miscarriage of justice at all. The circuits below are split on that issue of whether or not a sentencing claim in a non-capital case or a lesser included offense innocence claim is even a miscarriage of justice. But no matter how, how you come out, it seems to me, there is going to be an un, uh, uh, unavoidable complication if you have two standards, one for guilt and one for sins, in a case like Sawyer where the proof of arson was both an aggravating circumstance and an element of the crime. Um, as I said, Your Honor, I believe that for Mr. Schloop's situation, uh, I think that it would not be too confusing or too difficult. And, and there's always a cost involved in the exercise of habeas corpus jurisdiction. The question is whether the cost is worth it. And this court has said consistently that in the context of an innocent person, and, and, and whenever it is said that, it's been talking about someone convicted of the wrong crime, then, then innocence becomes the ultimate equity. Yes, but here we're talking about what standard are we going to, going to require it to prove innocence. We're not talking about whether innocence shall be uh, provable, but what standard. And what I'm suggesting is that your insistence on two different standards is, uh, is, is going to be, uh, going to complicate things. Your Honor, I believe innocence of the crime and innocence of the sentence are two situations that require two standards. And this Court does not apply one uniform standard across the board whenever it devises a standard for harmless error or prejudice or uh, in some other context. It looks at the interests involved and the equities involved in exercising habeas corpus jurisprudence, or uh, jurisdiction, rather. Um, and so it is not inappropriate to have two standards for this, because Mr. many... Mr. O'Brien, uh, whichever standard we use of the two, uh, uh, effectively, uh, there is no finality. We're, we're, we're saying whatever standard you must use, you must always, even if it's the 150th habeas, uh, you're saying the district court must always conduct a merits inquiry to determine whether there's a probability of innocence or whatever other standard you want to use, right? Your Honor, that's contrary to what the common law used to be. I mean, we used to have a thing called finality. You've had your shot at proving your innocence. You've been found guilty. Of course you come in and say you're innocent, but we've had a trial. Your Honor, I, I disagree that 
um, having a miscarriage of justice standard will always frustrate finality. In this case, in this court, applies many uh, standards, and I believe that's where in Kuhlman the term colorable claim I don't comes understand in. how you can tell whether the standard is met without having a hearing on the facts of guilt or innocence. Then you decide whether it's been proved probably or not, but you're reopening the whole merits thing. Now, I can see doing that in the first habeas, but you're saying thereafter, as many times as it comes forward, the judge has to go through the process of having a hearing to decide whether, indeed, whatever standard you pick has been met. Uh, Your Honor, claims of innocence this strong are very rare, and I believe the circumstances that you describe will be very strong it is, you can't tell how strong it is until you have the hearing. Um, there's a pleading standard that I believe that the courts are capable of looking at pleadings and attachments and affidavits, as we did below, attached to the pleadings that uh, would allow the court to determine on the basis of a pleading standard whether or not this is a colorable claim that should be allowed to go forward. They do in motions, of course, doing motions for a new trial all the time, don't they? Yes, they do. And, uh, Your Honor, in uh, this case, I believe in uh, your, your observation in Sawyer, uh, you stated that in order to satisfy the Kuhlman test, a prisoner, in addition to the habeas, would have to tender to the court reliable, non-cumulative, and admissible evidence, uh, which we did in, with our petition for habeas corpus. Uh, and also, as this court observed in Blackledge versus Allison, that uh, the court need not move forward with a hearing um, unless there are factual assertions and not just allegations. There's specific evidence. The evidence so, Brian, can I ask you a factual question that I don't quite yes, understand in the record? Up in page 33 of the joint appendix, there's a quote that's referred to in the briefs and so forth, where John Green states that he stepped out of the office and he heard the flowers calling for officers. Couldn't get nobody, so he told me to call base to notify him of the fight, and that's what I did. You're familiar with that? Yes, quote, Your Honor. Now, is that quote from uh, his present affidavit, or is that from the interview at the, the pretrial interview at, that, by the correction officials? That quote uh, is from a pretrial interview by the corrections officials about three days after the crime. And was that quote, did he, he did not testify at the trial? Correct. So that quote was not, a part of the, not made a part of the record. Now, was that quote made available to his counsel? Um, That's, I can't quite figure out. The record is open to that, and the council, outside the record, the council does not recall that quote being made available. Um, it uh, surfaced in the habeas litigation below when the prosecution, or the, Mr. Nixon's office, submitted a response to our petition and attached Exhibit T. This is Respondent's Exhibit T, uh, where the statement comes from. Uh, the, the existence of Green was known uh, prior to that to the second petition, but no one had interviewed him or introduced this statement. No one except the corrections officer. Except the corrections officer. That's that's correct. And then one other factual question: Was is there any dispute about the fact that there was indeed a telephone accessible as he describes it? None whatsoever. None whatsoever. Um, and in fact, uh, uh, control center officers say that it is not unusual at all that inmates would use that phone. Uh, and make calls, and there's a speed dial process that is wired into one of two different control centers. And one other, one other question, I'll, I'll be through. Was Green in some different status from most inmates? Did he have some kind of responsibilities? That were yes, Your Honor. He was a, a clerk, which is like a trustee position. Uh, and so he had the run of the housing unit, and he worked in the office, uh, did not have to spend uh, all of his time locked down in his cell. And your opponent contends, in effect, that he's lying in this particular statement. 
Correct, Your Honor. Uh, it is necessary that in order for Mr. Schlup to be guilty that you say that Mr. Green is lying. Uh, and Mr. Green made this statement before anybody knew of the existence of a videotape or knew of the exi- uh, knew the impact of that call. Uh, and as a matter of fact, uh, uh, in, in the brief we point out that Mr. Green has in fact passed a polygraph test when asked whether or not he saw the crime and whether he saw uh, whether Sloop was involved and whether or not he made the call as he was ordered to do so. It's also consistent... Who was Mr. Green? Mr. Green is the unit clerk in the housing unit who is the one who picked up the telephone and called the base when Roger Flowers ordered him to do so. And, and Mr. Flowers, in a couple of points... In well, you say that. They, they disagree with that fact. They um, say he did not, because if he called them, obviously this fellow couldn't have been at the head of the line. That's correct, and I believe that they, they have not introduced any evidence to, so, to show that uh, Mr. Green did not make that have call. Have you introduced evidence as to who received that call and what that person says? Your Honor, we have, uh, in the court below, filed a Rule 60B motion w- with evidence that we discovered during executive clemency proceedings. Um, and there is a corrections officer named Kurz who received a call. She does not recall the identity of the person who made the call, but she could hear the sounds of the confusion and the shouting going on in the background, and she believes that that call came in contemporaneously with the homicide. Uh, but she does not recall the identity of the caller. But that, plus Roger Flowers' testimony, that before he went in to break up the fight, he turned to someone and said, call base or get help, or words to that effect. Um, and uh, Mr. Green was the person whose obligation it was, whose job it was to respond and to that. Do call. you agree that it was Peoples that sent out the alarm that uh, resulted in the police leaving the cafeteria? No, Your Honor, I do not. Um, That's the state's position? That is the state's position, and there is an affid- there, I believe, is a deposition to that effect. Um, but there... What, what is your theory as to who could call the police from the cafeteria? Did Green have that authority? Anyone with a telephone or a radio could make that call. And as I said... Direct the police to leave? Uh, yes. I mean, actually, it would have to be someone from the control center. But there are two control centers. There's a housing unit control center, and there's the main penitentiary control center. And uh, Officer Peoples was operating the housing unit control center, and Officer Kerr was operating the main penitentiary control center. And she received a call. And I have no doubt that Peoples also received a call, or, uh, you know, I, I assume that he did. I, I don't know why he would not be telling the truth, but the point is, was that the first call to be broadcast? Uh, and there's another fact that... It doesn't seem to me that that's the point. The, the point is, what is the first call to the police in the cafeteria? Correct. And uh, was it Kerr or was it uh, was it People? But the other the other fact that came up in the depositions that were filed after the opinion below is that when Officer Flowers, in his deposition, was asked when it was that uh, he met Captain Eberly, who is the source of the of the radio call the prosecution relies upon, um, he said it was after Arthur Dade had been carried out of the housing unit on a stretcher. Well, you said you're said relying that, on depositions that were not available to the Eighth Circuit? No, Your Honor. These depositions were filed in the Eighth Circuit after the oral argument, and they're the depositions that the Eighth Circuit relied upon in its discussion. So it, it had them at the time it prepared its opinion? Yes, it did. Yes, it did. But the, the, the salient point that I believe was overlooked was that uh, Captain Eberly, according to Sergeant Flowers, arrived in the housing unit after Arthur Dade had been carried out on a stretcher, and the videotape shows that event took place 30 seconds 
after the guards ran out in response to the radio call. Is this the sort of arguments that federal courts all over the country are supposed to hear, you know, recapitulating the sort of evidence that is ordinarily submitted to the jury on guilt or innocence and every one of these claims of actual innocence? Your Honor. Who called who from the control tower? This is the kind of thing that's supposed to be brought out at trial. It should have been, and the trial should be the main event. And in this case, there were constitutional violations that we're trying to prove that prevented the trial from being the main event. And as Justice O'Connor pointed out in Strickland versus Washington, where you have that situation where the trial is not the main event because of a constitutional violation, then there is far less reason to defer to the findings of the jury. Because we're not just talking about the, the videotape I view as collaboration of ample other evidence, including the fact that one of the eyewitnesses that was unknown at trial is a three-time convicted felon. Uh, it was assumed, I think, wrongly by everyone in the case that just because a person is a corrections officer that they're a police officer and they have no felony records. Uh, but in this case, uh, that was not a, a correct assumption. The ambivalence in your, the theory of your case, it seems to me, or, or the tension is that you tell us that this is a most unusual case with compelling evidence of, of innocence, and yet you want us to adopt the lowest possible, or one of the lowest possible standards, colorable showing of innocence. Your Honor, um, and, it, and it seems to me if we adopt colorable showing of innocence, then, as the Chief Justice indicates, this kind of inquiry, the most intrusive of all inquiries, uh, relitigating the facts, is going to have to be done in every case. Your Honor, the probability of innocence, I believe, is what the law is and what it should be, because a standard higher than that will not reach other innocent people. But Mr. Schloop's position is that we could prevail under any standard that is less demanding than Jackson versus Virginia. Well, um, you didn't prevail under clear and convincing in the circuit. Your Honor, in the circuit, the circuit court looked only at Mr. Schloop's evidence and really did not consider uh, there's, there are discussion regarding the state's evidence in this case. Well, it's you simply didn't that prevail in the circuit under the clear and convincing standard, did you? Not as applied in the circuit, Your Honor. Well, but aren't you claiming that they didn't apply it, that in fact they applied Jackson? Correct. Thank you, Mr. O'Brien. General Nixon, we'll hear from you. Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court. Lloyd Sloop is not innocent of this murder by any standard. But the standard that this Court should apply is the Sawyer standard. The clear and convincing standard is appropriate, especially in cases such as this, where you have repackaged and redeveloped evidence that comes in at the 11th hour, continues to flow in uh, as the process moves through the appellate courts, Eight, nine, ten years later, new evidence, people changing their testimony, repackaged evidence. This is the type of case that screams out. When did this crime take place, General Nixon? This crime took place in February of 1984. More than ten years ago. Yes. You would agree, wouldn't you, that if Green is telling the truth and if the officer, and the new officer is telling the truth, then he is innocent? No, Your Honor, I would not. You would not. If Green is, if, if Green the officer who who stopped him and frisked him, uh, frisked uh, uh, Schloop on the way to the dining hall, if he's I, telling the truth, the guy has to be innocent. No, Your Honor, I would not. Uh, if Green, Your Honor, if we believe Green's new story, which is in direct contravention to what he testified in trial at Stewart's trial, as well as his earlier statements, if you believe that he radioed in yes. immediately upon the time of the body falling, right, then you look at the videotape. 
And there was only 26 seconds between the time that that call was supposedly made by Green and the time that O'Neill comes into the cafeteria downstairs. And all of the evidence in this case shows it's impossible for O'Neill, the admitted murderer who claimed self-defense, to have stabbed, to have run down, as the uncontroverted evidence says, broken a window, thrown the knife out the window, come back, washed his hands with other witnesses, including other corrections officers, seeing wash the hands, and go down to the cafeteria. If you hold Green's present statement as controlling, well, the murder the never occurred. The when he made the phone call, not when the alarm went out. Well, they are claiming, Your Honor, that, that, that it is contemporaneous, that somehow this phone you're call is the equivalent to, be, to a risk. You're saying it has to be more than 26 seconds. It couldn't be totally contemporaneous. But if it was, with, if it was within a minute, say rather than either contemporaneous or five minutes later, then the man has to be innocent. Your Honor, in no situation does this man have to be innocent because the facts in this case are, are overwhelming. But what about Officer Flaherty's testimony? Officer Flaherty... Flaherty, whatever it was. Officer Flaherty's changed and redeveloped testimony. No, but supposing what he's saying now is true, wouldn't the man have to be innocent? No, because Officer Flaherty's time... First of all, Officer Flaherty is not a witness to the murder. Well, I understand. Malian and Flowers were. Faraday is merely testifying as to the amount of time spent near what's called the T3 gate. Right. He has broadened that time from 10 to 15 seconds, which he testified at trial, to now four to four and a half minutes total for a period of time down there. Regardless of what his testimony is, that doesn't tie to anything else. It sits there by itself. And so in and of itself does not provide clear and convincing evidence. Obviously, it's probative. Uh, and interesting, but no, it does not provide clear and convincing evidence uh, in any way, shape, or form. In, this in, in case. Green's case, I take it your argument is not that the uh, petitioner must be innocent if Green is telling the truth, but rather that Green couldn't be telling the truth because what he says is inconsistent with other evidence. Isn't that your argument? Yes, uh, okay. Justice Souter. So, so if, if, the, if the evidence is going to be evaluated uh, and it were accepted, if Green were accepted in your argument for impossibility, uh, fails uh, in the mind of the fact finder, then the conclusion would follow that the petitioner was innocent. Yes, Your Honor, that is a possible analysis of it. However, it is important to note that, as I indicated before, if you believe Green's present third version testimony, the murder by O'Neill could not even occur have occurred. And Green has testified in front of a jury. Oh, no, I think I understand your argument. I wanted to make sure that I did understand. Yes. Well, is, is it the th your theory of the case... Uh, that uh, time may have elapsed between the f first notice to the base of a disturbance and the time that people's called for help? What, what is your theory as to what prompted the guards to leave the cafeteria? The guards were prompted to leave the cafeteria, Justice Kennedy, what, 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 by a call. What caused that? The, the radio call. They received a radio call. From whom? We would, your theory of the case? Peoples, uh, from the base. Under our theory... Had he, in turn, received other calls from, say, perhaps Green? Is, is that possible or not? Certainly it's possible. He may or may not have received calls. Uh, this, this, the, the new evidence that's just been raised in the 60B motion about somebody else in some other base getting a call, too, may have also happened. Was, was Green on a frequency that was different uh, from the one that Peoples used to communicate to the guards in the cafeteria? There's no evidence in the record as to what frequency... The evidence subsequent would show that the, the method of communication by Green was a phone and not a radio. 
And I think that is an important and essential point to what's going on here is that even under Green's new testimony, he went back to this little office on top and made a phone call. To the base. To base. He's not sure what base. Earlier it was the base where Peoples was. Now they say it's the base, some other base, where somebody else may have heard that call. Uh, the 60B motion talks about a different person receiving it. And there call. may have been a substantial delay between the time that call was made and the time the alert went out from base to the guards in the cafeteria. That's your theory. No, Your Honor, I would say that our theory is that the delay occurred as when in the time prior to that. That, that what happened in this situation is the two eyewitnesses see it. Is, is it your theory that the first time the base received any notice of an incident that they called the guards in the cafeteria? That was the, the deposition testimony of, of Peoples is very clear in saying it received the radio call from Eberly, who had come up the steps, and that was the basis of his call. That was the time that Peoples made the call that went out, the 1050, that caused the reaction that was seen down in the, in the cafeteria, that it was Peoples' call some minutes after Dade was actually stabbed, and not, if it even occurred, the green call, which went down uh, to... I should note, uh, Justice Kennedy, another matter of import in this is that at the PCR hearing at, at, uh, prior to this, the defense counsel was, an affidavit of defense counsel was presented in which he admitted having access to all of the investigation materials, all 100 interviews that we're talking about here, the original statements of Green, uh, the, the statements that talk about this, trial counsel had all of those and made the decisions at trial not to bring that evidence forward in the fashion that, that he thought was appropriate. He had, uh, and I think it's an essential part of this when you talk about moving through a gateway to an ineffective claim here. This is a counsel that had 100 interviews that they admit that they reviewed. They took 38 depositions. Defense counsel is the one who discovered the so-called videotape that's out there and effectively, aggressively defended this case. They brought inmates into the courtroom to testify about how the timing of Mr. Schlute... Did he explain why he didn't put in this statement by Green if he had access to it? No, he did not, Your Honor. Do we know that he read that statement one way or another? The PCR motion and the statement by the counsel at that PCR motion would indicate that he had in his possession well, you say and he, quote, reviewed. There, you said there are hundreds of depositions, a large, large volume of material. I don't maybe not hundreds, but a lot of they interviewed a large number of inmates, right? One hundred. One hundred, and they they wrote down what they said in those interviews. One hundred individuals. It was taped. They were all taped. Those transcripts were then turned over. And he saw all that material, but you don't know whether he particularly focused on this statement by Green, do you? No, I do not know whether he did. He didn't comment one way or another. No, he did indicate, and the trial, the trial court everything found available. that he had it all. Yeah. It was all there. Uh, and it should be noted also that this was the third of the cases to be tried in a trilogy, and they had access to the trial transcripts of the first two trials. Um, this, is, this is not a case in which there was not a great deal of discovery done prior to trial. Uh, defense counsel had all of this evidence and, and information. Let me ask in your advice and one, your help on one other word that I don't understand in the record. When Schluth was interviewed before he knew there was the videotape and so forth, he, he said he was the first one in the dining room. And Officer Basinger said, Hamer said, whoa, be careful. And the other officer said, don't be parachuting us on us. Do you remember that in the record? What does the word parachuting mean? That's new one on me. I, I, I'm not familiar with all the different uh, jargon of, of the... Uh, Corrections officers in prison. I just don't know what parachuting us means. He just said, apparently, what I infer from, and I hope you correct me if I'm wrong, 
is that Basinger thought that was so improbable that he could have been at the head of the line that he said, don't be parachuting on us. That's the, that's the inference I draw from it. Do you think I'm wrong? Um, Your Honor, I don't know what the term means, and, and you're entitled to draw the inference you think is most appropriate. General um, Nixon, uh, two questions. What is the status of the Missouri clemency proceeding? In this situation, uh, Justice Ginsburg, a board of inquiry has been appointed that is taken evidence and is in the process of taking more evidence uh, to present to the governor of the state of Missouri. That's, so that's ongoing right now. We don't, it's the same status that it was in when we granted cert. Same status, yes, uh, uh, Justice. Whether uh, they may have taken more information in since certiorari was granted by this court, uh, but the panel, it's a three-judge panel, three retired judges from state court judges, um, taking information to make a recommendation to uh, the governor. That hasn't been stayed in any way because of this grant of cert. There has been no stay in that whatsoever, um, Your Honor. That, it's, it's a non-judicial proceeding. You know, it, it is the governor reaching out to attempt to get more information uh, in this situation and asking three retired judges to review this type of uh, things, uh, evidence, affidavits, uh, and other matters that are coming forward uh, uh, daily. And then my other question is, is it your position that the discussion of how strong this new evidence is is essentially academic because there's nothing behind the gate? And I'd like you to address that, assuming that you lose on the standard. Uh, Is it your position that there's nothing there so that... If there's nothing there, there's no reason to find out. If, the, if there's nothing behind the door, it doesn't matter whether the door is open or closed. Yes, Your Honor. We, we, we agree wholeheartedly that it is a, a, a gate that's tough to get through. It is a big gate. But behind that gate, um, th- there are no claims. For example, the question was answered, asked earlier by Justice Souter concerning the Brady claim at the district court. And I would like to read just one sentence from the district court's finding where, uh, contrary to, uh, to uh, appellant's counsel, the district court, and I quote, thus nothing in the record supports petitioner's contention that the exculpatory evidence petitioner relies on even exists. Careful review of, this inter- of the interview transcript submitted by petitioner does not alter this conclusion. The well, Brady that claim... Be, that may be right or it may be wrong, but that isn't what, he, that isn't what the, uh, the appeal was, uh, was concerned with, was it? I mean, that, that issue was never litigated on appeal. The appeal turned on the, on the gate question, the door question. Yes, Your Honor, I, I would agree that the, the appeal de- dealt with the gateway issue, but the underlying claim of Brady was dealt with uh, by that but, issue. I mean, he's, he's, he's entitled to have an appeal on it if he, if he gets through the door. Yes, if he gets through the door, Your Honor. He is, he is entitled. That, that, that's what the door gets him. Uh, once he gets there, I think if, if I'm proper in, in, in understanding the question of Justice Ginsburg, it would be that, that there's not much behind the gate on, as well as ineffective. Your position is that that has been reserved in the Court of Appeals. Your Honor, I think Your position is the petitioner has reserved the Brady claim in the Court of Appeals in the event he wins on the standard point. Yes, Your Honor, I believe that's what's behind the gateway, the Brady as well as the ineffective. That's been preserved it. adequately in the Court of Appeals in your view. No, Your Honor, I'm not confident it's been preserved adequately uh, in, in this particular matter. I think that the theory has evolved uh, into ineffective being the more primary of those particular two gateway claims, although one could argue from the eighth opinion uh, that, that there is a hook regarding a Brady claim in there. General Nixon, do you, especially if we adopt uh, the standard that you, uh, uh, that you propose, do you really seriously think we're talking about a gateway here? I mean, do you expect that line to hold, that, that federal courts will be able to say, 
Yes, there is an overwhelming probability of innocence here, but as it happens, there was no constitutional violation, and therefore this, uh, this person will, will have to serve out the rest of his 100-year sentence or be put to death. Unfortunately, in all likelihood, he's innocent, but uh, the, 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 the technical requirement of a constitutional violation has not been. Will that line hold? Yes, Your Honor. I either have to stop talking about gateways or stop talking about the, uh, the, the, the high standard that you propose, one or the other. Your Honor, I think that, that you can talk about both. Um, uh, certainly would be easier if there, if there, if there weren't both. Uh, it would help in demystifying this, this in, entire area. Um, but I, I don't think that, especially in what we're dealing with here, which is a, you know, successive or abusive, uh, having a high standard to get through the gateway, having a higher standard than, than what is necessary to meet, for example, you know, Strickland prejudice and all, all the other things that are underneath that uh, is not improper, especially if one's reading of Herrera is that there may be uh, the truly extraordinary case out there uh, that can run around the gateway. I, I would be astounded if that line held. I'd really be astounded. I think another important point to make here in, in this case is that, that what Petitioner is arguing for two separate standards. Uh, and it doesn't make good sense from a policy or a precedent standpoint. A uniform standard for guilt and, and, and penalty phases, and guilt and penalty, regardless of whether it's a capital case, uh, is much easier for the lower courts, uh, especially in situations where we get 11th hour situations such as the one that's presented here. Uh, and also, issues of guilt and penalty aren't always different. Uh, as, as was mentioned in prior questions. Penalty claims could be repackaged and relitigated as guilt claims later in the process. Run it up the flagpole the first time and try it again under the lower colorable standard. But isn't, isn't it also the case that in, in, in any ultimate resolution of the penalty phase, there is a kind of value judgment goes with it, uh, that, is, uh, that is made by the senator, which is different from the kind of factual Discretion or discretion to find fact, uh, which is the essence of the guilt phase uh, determination. I mean, there, there are two different kinds of judgments uh, depending on whether we're dealing with guilt or whether we're dealing with, uh, with penalty. Justice Souter, I would admit that there, are, there is a, a, a subjective element to a, a jury making the determination between life in prison or death. However, well, it's not merely subjective. It, it, in, it involves the imposition of values. I mean, Certainly. at some point, a determination must be made as to whether, for example, that the aggravating circumstances and all the other evidence in the case merits a certain penalty or whether it doesn't. And that is a different kind of determination from the, the guilt determination, which in essence is what happened. That portion of it is, Your Honor. But the determination made under Sawyer of an aggravating circumstance, of the objective proof necessary to prove an objective factor making someone eligible for the death penalty, mm -hmm. is not, in our, in our estimation, different from what's necessary to that's, prove their that's, guilt. That's, that's, that that is, is, in some cases, going to be true. But the ultimate determination that has to be made in a Sawyer kind of case is a determination which must take into consideration the, the, quest, the, the, uh, the, the ultimate uh, discretion to make a value judgment as distinct from uh, the discretion to make a factual judgment. Yes, Your Honor. Yes, that's, Your Honor. Going to be true, that's going to be true in every Sawyer case, regardless of, of how the Sawyer case particularly is presented. Yes, Your Honor, unless you find that so narrow holding of the Sawyer is that it just deals with capital cases just on the issue of, of death. Um, but I think if you... If you bring it to the context of penalty and guilt and intermesh it into a system that, that those same arguments are not as strong. 
General Nixon, you, you really uh, you, you you don't want to quibble about the principle. You're just concerned about the standard. I mean, but you you concede that uh, uh, that on a successive habeas claim, no matter how far down the line it it, it may be, uh, there has to be at least some possibility under some standard of re-raising the claim of innocence. Yes, Your Honor. There would be some what, we what, think case of ours, what case of ours holds that? One could argue the four-year standard in dealing with successive and abusive and setting a standard, uh, well, clear and convincing. What case that. reaches a result that, that would not have been reached but for that possibility of being able to raise claims of innocence in subsequent habeas petitions? Or to put it more precisely, what case of ours holds that the prior common law rule that a successive habeas petition may, may be, need not be, if the district court wants to entertain it, it may, but that, it, that a successive habeas uh, petition may always be dismissed by the district judge simply on the ground that it is successive, period. What case of ours holds to the contrary of that? None that I'm aware of, Your Honor. It is also important to note, as was raised by Justice O'Connor, earlier in the argument, that, that the Strickland reasonable probability test is eerily close to the fair probability test of the Kuhlman uh, standard here. And I think we would all argue that it is important to have a tougher test for the probable actual innocence, miscarriage of justice exception, than it is for uh, the cause and prejudice into this. And the difference, we have struggled with trying to figure out the difference between reasonable probability and fair probability uh, and have unsuccessfully done that, and I believe that the lower courts have unsuccessfully also been able to grapple with the distinction between those two. Kuhlman is just way too close to reasonable probability, and for that matter, too close to the new trial standard. The probably Excuse me, General. May, may the answer to that be the difference between the Kuhlman formulation and the Carrier formulation? Because the Kuhlman formulation goes to, I guess, fair probability of reasonable doubt, whereas Carrier talks about probability of innocence. Um, and uh, one, one could, could see, I am not saying that in, under our cases one should, but one could see the distinction as being the distinction between uh, legal innocence and factual innocence. And if, if Carrier were read in the latter sense, then Carrier would, or the Carrier formulation would provide the distinction that you're arguing for, and, and your opposing counsel says he would accept that as, as being appropriate. One could read it that way, Your Honor. Uh, that is an extremely difficult read at the, at the trial bench. Uh, why, why, I don't mean it's hard to do, I just mean why is, it, why is it difficult? I mean, I, most trial judges can tell the difference between somebody who committed the act but has not been shown to have done so beyond a reasonable doubt and somebody who, uh, in the classic case, wasn't there. That's, that's not hard. That distinction isn't hard to, to draw. I, I, was relying, I, I was referring to the standards, Your Honor, not the the ultimate decision, which obviously they're fully capable of making, but the standards uh, being well, so fairly close. One standard talks about reasonable doubt, one standard talks about innocence. Why, why are they hard to keep separate if, if we make it clear that there is, there is this distinction between legal and factual innocence? If you draw that distinction, Your Honor, then it, it is much easier to, to come to the conclusion you did, but I would submit that fair probability standard of Kuhlman is difficult to ascertain uh, regardless of what words you put. Uh, behind it. Fair probability. Fair, I uh, said it was a fair probability of rain today. I didn't know whether to bring a raincoat or not. Uh, you know, and that's the standard that the petitioner says that we should make decisions about life and death uh, on. Well, the petitioner said that he would take the carrier formulation. 
I appreciate that, Your Honor. So your view on why that is not the one we should adopt is, why Carrie is not the standard we should adopt? It's that the Sawyer standard is better, Your Honor, and, and this Court upheld the Sawyer standard in Sawyer, uh, and we argue that Sawyer applies already. Uh, the Eighth Circuit held that, uh, and we're here arguing for the clear and convincing standard. And it is important to note that the states do have a legitimate interest in finality in these particular cases. As was quoted in Engel, deterrence depends on the expectation of punishment. Uh, the trial evidence, the main event, uh, should be the point where we balance and look and, and scrutinize evidence more than 10 years later looking at types of evidence that jumps in. It's, we shouldn't reward sandbagging, holding back of, of valuable information and using that at later proceedings. And I, I, we clearly believe that victims, juries, and communities have legitimate punitive interests in these cases coming to an end. And to have a... We should reward sandbagging only when there is a, a, a what, compelling evidence of innocence? You're, you're willing to, re, to reward it then? Right. No, Your Honor, I don't ever want to reward sandbagging. And I think we should never reward sandbagging. And I draw that, that objection to, uh, to the other standard. I mean, we're just talking about when to reward it, not whether, I, I suppose. Well, uh, Justice Scalia, I mean, we, we're arguing for, for the clear and convincing standard in this particular case. Um, that is a standard that allows... Can you cite me to a case in which a lawyer ever sandbagged? I can't imagine a defense lawyer in a capital case withholding evidence of innocence because he might like to use it later. Does that really happen? In this case, Your Honor, the trial court, the district court, uh, has held that the defendant themselves, himself, didn't present all evidence to his counsel. And therein, Is that what sandbagging you mean by also. sandbagging? Well, either one. I mean, I, I thought it was a tactical, sandbagging referred to a tactical decision by a lawyer not to use evidence of innocence because he wants to use it later. And I just don't think that happens. Maybe I'm wrong, but the ethical counsel doing that, I just can't believe it. I think the tactic does occur out there. Um, um, Justice? Can you cite me a case in which any, any, any appellate de- uh, court de- describes that having happened? No, Your Honor. I not. certainly am not aware of any. Justice Breyer. That you're about to make. So just the, the <laughs> w- my understanding of this, and, and correct me if I'm wrong, and I may well be wrong, but my, my understanding of this is we're talking about a person in general who has some kind of a claim that his trial was unconstitutional or held in violation of the laws of the United States. He's already had one habeas proceeding. Now he comes to a second, a third, or a fourth. And normally it involves a claim that wasn't made at the first. It could involve a claim that was, in which case it would be successive, but it involves a claim that wasn't made at the first proceeding. And so the obvious question is, why didn't you make it before? And he has to have a very good answer to that, really a very good answer, or we won't even listen to it. But there's an exception. The exception to his having a very good answer, maybe it's only a fairly good answer, but not a very... The exception is if you really think there was a miscarriage of justice. Now, what's that? And my reading of it is what Henry Friendly said is, well, what that is, is if the trier of fact, I'm the habeas judge, imagine, if the trier of fact, would have entertained a reasonable doubt of guilt. That's what Henry Friendly once said the judge should ask himself. 
And I take it Kuhlman basically picked that up, not using exactly those words. And then if you're going to use that standard, you'd say, I'll tell you one variety of miscarriage of justice. If you judge sitting there, think that the trier of fact at the trial had seen all this evidence, he would have found a reasonable doubt. Now, that's basically the Kuhlman standard, and they say they've met it in this very unusual case. Henry Friendly said, believe me, those cases are few and far between. Having sat in a court of appeals, I'd agree, and I hope they're very few and far between. But they say they've got one. All right, my question is, we're talking about an exception that comes up rarely. Why do you need a tougher standard than that? That the judge should sit there, ask himself conscientiously, with all this stuff in here, all the evidence, would that trier of fact have had a reasonable doubt? Would have, not some theoretical speculation. But if I believe the answer to that question is yes, I should at least listen to the constitutional claim. And my statement of it may be wrong, in which case correct me. But, but if, if not, then w what is the answer to it? You were close, Your Honor. Mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Judge Friendly's standard, we, we would say, is a good standard for first habeases. Uh, and would argue that that's what Kuhlman said. If you're going to get making it through there, um, that, that you've got to have a colorable showing, and that's where it fits in the process. And he was applying it to first habeas, actually, wasn't he, in his article? I believe so, Your Honor. Yes, it, he said to all habeas, assuming first. Uh, he talked about the explosion of habeas in that University of Chicago Law Review article, talking about as many as four or 500 cases nationwide in a year at that time. Um, and in this case, it's not. It's a successive or, or abusive. It's, we're later on in the process. And plus, Your Honor, I, I just deeply believe that the fair probability standard that has been written in Kuhlman as the interpretation of what Friendly's colorable showing mm -hmm. and entertaining is, is far too imprecise. It, it, it mirrors the Strickland test. It mirrors the new trial test. It doesn't penalize later claims, and it doesn't set a bright line for trial courts and appellate courts to make these key decisions. And thus, I think it makes problems, and I believe that it doesn't do what it was designed to do. Maybe if it's the first one, uh, it, it makes more sense. So Kuhlman doesn't apply to a first one. I take it Kuhlman applies to the second, third, etc. Yes. Mm -hmm. Therein lies, you know, the issue of why we're, we're in, in essence, here today before this court uh, is to, to finish the job. Uh, if Sawyer did it for the penalty phase, uh, and this presents the opportunity uh, to provide that same standard at clear and convincing for abusive and successive in the, the uh, guilt phase of these cases also, to draw the single standard across the line, to draw one that provides safeguards, provides, as I indicated to Justice Scalia, some opportunities. Across the line, or were you conceding that the friendly position is okay for the first habeas, but after that it's not? The Gen generally, yes, Justice Ginsburg. And so this, this court is faced with the opportunity to, to draw that line at, at the point, and I would argue that it did it already in Sawyer, uh, dealing with objective, specific evidence. But your, your concern, then, is not with the difficulty of the standard. I mean, if the standard is not too imprecise for, uh, on round one, it's not too imprecise for round two. You want a, a higher standard for round two because there's been a round one. That's your argument. That is one of the strong arguments. But it is it's true. I mean, if the standard is, is, is too imprecise for round two, uh, it's too imprecise for round one. And if it's okay for round one, why isn't it okay for round two? It is not precise enough. It's not high enough. And it is too close to the Strickland standard. It is too close to the other myriad of standards. It would swallow up the cause and prejudice 
uh, wing of, of the miscarriage uh, of this particular area of Hades. Thank you. Thank you, General Nixon. The case is submitted.